left fielders. At LFI, you know our focus is on networking and education. Mark your calendars because we're going to have a full day of it dedicated to you, our limited partners, at the best ever conference on April 9th in Salt Lake City. Left Field Investors is opening the BEC with Passive Investing Mastery, an event focused on passive investors. This will be where insightful content meets passionate LP investors. If you enjoyed BEC last year and the meetup in left field this year, imagine them both back to back. The best ever conference isn't just any event. It's the premier conference for commercial real estate investors and operators. Your ticket to passive investing mastery includes admission to the entire best ever conference from April 9th through the 12th. Join us April 9th, where we will have a packed agenda with sessions focused on how to be a successful limited partner led by experienced LPs, top operators, and partners. Then immerse yourself in the full best ever conference where you will be surrounded by like-minded investors, operators, and industry experts for unparalleled opportunities for learning and networking. The best part, and there are so many, but the best part, you won't find a bigger discount on the regular ticket price than the one you get for being an infielder. That's more content for an exclusive lower price. Register for the event today at leftfieldinvestors.com slash BEC, and we will see you at Passive Investing Mastery presented by Left Field Investors at the BEC. Are you looking for a way to invest at a lower minimum and participate in more deals? Look no further than our weekly deal webinars hosted in collaboration with TribeVest. With every deal we offer, left field investors have the option to join an open tribe, allowing you to invest for as little as $10,000. No need to meet the standard $50,000 minimum. Joining an open tribe is easy. TribeVest handles all of the setup, fund collection and distribution, and even provides K-1s for tax time. All you have to do is sign up. Stay up to date with LFI by subscribing to our emails and gaining clubhouse access to join our deal webinars and open tribes. Don't miss out. Hi, this is Zach Haptonstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona, and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200-plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equity's multifamily investments, schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. It's so important to invest with experienced sponsors because, you know, look, sponsors have skin in the game because at the end of the day, if you've got a sponsor who's experienced, you've got a sponsor who's put, you know, not an insubstantial amount of capital next to yours. And that's certainly been our philosophy of clear capital, you know, watch what we do now. It, it, there will be, there's still that uh, uncertainty. There's no question. And I think one thing to keep an eye on is really making sure that the sponsors with whom we've all invested have executed. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Hi, this is Scott Royal-Smith from Royal Legal Solutions, and you're listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited today to have Eric Sussman with us again and again this third time. He's a founding partner of Clear Capital. He has over 25 years of real estate experience. He's an adjunct professor with 
the Big Ten Conferences, UCLA Anderson Graduate School of Management. He's previously on episode 21 in July of 2021 and episode 60 in April of 2022. So we are super excited to have Eric back. Eric, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. It's great to be back. You know, they say the third time's the charm for marriage and to appear on your podcast, Jim. So it's good to be back for a a third go round. That's perfect. I was actually expecting some some dig against the Big Ten, but you can't do that now that you're with us. Um, so I, well, we'll talk about that later. But I'm sure you're fired up about that. If you um if you could, the first thing I always want to know is is your journey. Now you were on two episodes already, so if they really want to know about you, they can go back and and listen to those episodes, which will be in the show notes. But give us kind of the Cliff Notes version of um of your journey into real estate and and to, and to the Big Ten. Sure, sure thing, Jim. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I guess uh, a lot of paths that we've all had professionally are a bit circuitous. And I think mine, uh, you know, checks those boxes because to live really, I've had I've had careers in two fields in parallel, full careers, really, both in sort of academia over at uh, UCLA Anderson. Uh, to my knowledge, I'm the only uh, professor in the country in both accounting and real estate. So kind of a weird thing. My my mother's very proud of that. Um, uh <laughs> And then, you know, I, I'm the managing partner of Clear Capital, as you said. We're, a, uh, as many of you know, uh, value at multifamily folks uh, sort of in our part of the country. Yeah, we haven't really gone uh, east of, I'm not sure what the dividing line is, but where the Big Ten begins, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I started out my career after uh, after graduating from UCLA. It's amazing that I, I'm a faculty member at the school I, I went to college, uh, where I went to college, which is sort of cool. Um you know, I, I got my CPA. So I started my career at Price Waterhouse and then made the transition to real estate uh, after uh, a Stanford Business School in the, in the dark ages about 30 years ago. And I, the, the rest is sort of uh, history. But uh, anyways, it is great to be back with you. Obviously, you know, we were joking, Jim, that the times, whenever we seem to chat, there's always stuff going on. And my gosh, was it two years ago that we last chatted? It, it's amazing, uh, you know, <laughs> what, has, uh, what has changed. Yeah, well, I, again, I love these episodes because, um, you know, and I recommend everybody check out your newsletter. It's phenomenal. It comes out every quarter and it's just got charts and graphs and, and explanations. And it's also fun to read because um, you're a funny guy. So you get entertainment with education. And, and I love that. So I want to do a couple of updates um, from from the last podcast. And this was you were actually on last spring of 2022. And you said um that Powell needed to thread the needle to control inflation. So the question is, did he do it? You know, it's amazing. I, if you had asked me to handicap the odds that Powell would have somehow given us a soft landing somehow, I would have said you'd been, you know, probably, um, I don't know, maybe inhaling some of California's finest, or I would have put those odds at a pretty slow number. But, uh, you know, so far it looks like he's they've done it somehow. I mean, the U.S., um, you know, economically is in the best shape in, in the developed world. Uh, GDP is positive. We haven't had that R word, even though, you know, it's sort of on everyone's tongue and we're wondering if it's going to happen. But let's not kid ourselves either. I mean, I, you know, it's maybe even a soft landing, but let's, for those of us in commercial real estate and, and, uh, in multifamily, you know, I'm not sure the landing has yet really been determined. It's still out there because of, again, the increase in interest rates. And sort of the pummeling they've put us through, but it's amazing, you know, Jim. If you look at the equity markets, in fact, um, 
I had this graph. I can't really use it on the show, but it'll be in my next newsletter. It shows through July. So that's the latest I have the data of like every asset class. You think about it from crypto to this to that. And it's all green. Pretty much every asset class is sort of green this year. And if you'd asked anyone to predict that, they would have said no way. In fact, the, the equity markets have essentially recovered and then some the losses from last year. You know, that just is stunning to me with rates going up. It's sort of uh, nuts, actually, and, and sort of surprising. So, so far, yeah, but the, the seems the Powell, the seamstress, what's the male version of seamstress? I don't know, the seamster? Seamster, uh, yeah, I guess. The seamster <laughs> has, uh, has seen, have, have done it. We'll see. Well, so the data shows it, right? But I don't think anybody's feeling it. Investors are still concerned. <laughs> Consumers, they still seem to be spending. But, you know, if you ask anybody, how's the economy or how are things going? You know, it's like just disaster after disaster. But when you look at the data, it's unemployment is at historical lows, all this stuff. And so what, what's the disconnect? You know, it's like it's it's mixed news, mixed emotions. You know, what's that old joke that uh, the definition of mixed emotions is seeing your mother-in-law drive off the cliff in your new Tesla? Um, you know, uh, it's you're, you're absolutely right. I think, look, the way investors are feeling, you're, you captured the right word. It, it is uncertainty. And that is the right word because there's still so much uncertainty that remains, un, uh, you know, in terms of what might transpire, what might happen as we think about uh, going forward. Um, geopolitically, I think part of it is the media. Let's be honest. In, a, in an election year, you know, a lot. I'm sure your listeners get their um, same with me. We get our information from a number of sources, and I think the media, of course, benefits from uncertainty, benefits from conflict, and so they're doing everything they can to keep that up. Um, but I, I think that, again, it's still uncertain, Jim. I mean. You know, we, we've had this incredible increase in rates. There's a lot of loans, commercial loans that are coming due, um, you know, trillion five, let's say, depends on how you measure it, the next few years. And a lot of those loans are either underwater or going to require significant cash in upon refinance. And so it kind of remains to be seen. Transaction volumes in real estate are way down in every sector. You know, there's a sort of price discovery going on between buyers and sellers and the rest of it. So that's adding to a lot of the uncertainty. I'm sure we'll, we can go into more uh, more detail on, on all these things. Yeah. And, and that when, I guess that this question is probably unanswerable. You know, in your, in your most recent newsletter, you said the word uncertainty was used 60 times in the IMF Global Economic Outlook. Mm -hmm. So my question is, when are we going to be back to certainty? Are we ever going to be certain? You know, there, there's there's no such thing, right? What I say um, is that uh, look, the, the sun's coming up here in Southern California. I apologize. You can all see <laughs> you can see the wrinkles more clearly. I'm not sure that's a good thing. Um, you know, I'm not sure there's ever certainty. So it's all sort of relative. And and I I've used this line many times, and I'm sure this will resonate with a lot of us. Is that when there's consensus, when people. Yeah, the pundits all sort of agree on where the economy is headed. The likely outcome is something completely different. Um, you know, I, I, there's lots of examples on, on that and, and, and it may be a little bit uh, trite, but I think there's some truth to it. So look, I mean, there's never anything such as certainty. The, the markets are uncertain. I mean, of course, geopolitics uncertain. Uh, it's just, I think right now, because of the geopolitical environment, the national political environment, uh, Inflation uncertainty, you know, it's a, it's it's magnified, uh, you know, these days. Well, let's talk about some of the specific um, uncertain uncertain things, right? Like interest rates and rate caps on, you know, commercial 
deals when, when someone's going to, to get a new loan. Can you talk about just what is it like out there now? How has it changed and, and where do you think we're going? It, it, it's tough, you know, Jim, it's absolutely tough. And you have to sort of, of course, in any investment, sort of think about the uh, the debt markets and of course, equity investors and, and you know, the folks on this podcast and, and uh, you know, we're equity investors, we're, we're behind the debt. But the, the, the debt market, again, has changed so substantially you know, over the times that we have, have spoken. So you have to sort of think about, you know, obviously the increase in interest rates, that's that's sort of a given. But the underwriting has has changed there. You know, the, the spreads have widened in the in the uncertain market. Lenders have increased their spreads um, loan to values where, let's say, on in our, our deals, maybe we could get 70 percent loan to value. We're at, you know, sort of 60 percent loan to value. And of course, the whole fixed versus variable game plan. Right. In in our space, look, value-add folks, I don't care if you're doing value-add in industrial, office, retail, and certainly multifamily, you, in any business, you match the debt with the, the business plan, right? And, and so when you're doing value-add and the goal is to improve the project and increase rents and increase NOI and then do a recap, you know, getting fixed-rate financing really didn't make much sense. Um, you know, you get floating-rate debt to match the structure. You hedge that to some degree through those caps, as you mentioned, and then hopefully you execute quickly enough. And if there is an increase in rates, you're hedged and you're getting an increase in NOI to offset that. That's the whole business model. But when you have the kind of increase in rates that we had, that has wreaked havoc on you know, interest rate caps and the, the cost of those caps tied to variable rate debt. And even if you're hedged, you still have the delta between the, the rate, the initial rate on that debt and the, the cap rate, the ceiling. And so... You know, people in our space across the board are facing much higher borrowing costs, more challenging refis. And when those uh, caps expire, you know, got to renew those. And uh, those are much more costly now than they were. So th those are a few things to chew on for sure. Yeah, well, talk about the, the interest rate caps then. So the, the pricing for those has gone through the roof. And again, I, I don't want to make this whole podcast about uncertainty, but is that why, like, you know, it, it's not the interest rates are not historically high right now. They're just a lot higher than they were a couple of years ago. And it went so fast. So is that the problem with the rate caps and why they're so expensive? Yes. I mean, think of it as the difference between, you know, sort of velocity and acceleration for my physics or science minded folks. Right. It, you have you know velocity, which is an absolute metric. How fast are you going in your car? How high are the rates? And Jim, you hit the nail on the head. Right. You know, you look at the graphs and many of us. Uh, have the scars, uh, thinning hair and wrinkles to remember the seventies, or you've heard my, my joke, you know, those that live through the seventies, you, know, you don't remember it, but, um, you know, rates were much higher, but the acceleration, the change in velocity, right? The change in interest rates, that's been historic. I mean, going from zero to five and a half percent on the Fed funds rate in 22 months. Not nowhere near. That's that didn't happen in the seventies or ever in our history. So, it's that change which is really wreaking havoc. Obviously, yes, the absolute change is creating a higher, you know, costs across the board. But then it's that delta, which has the uncertainty where are rates going, and uh, derivatives always are, uh, you know, very impacted their value by uh, you know again changes and 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 that increases the risk. So can we expect, let's say that, you know, interest rates don't get increased much more, right? They're talking about one more raise and then maybe a flattening. You know, if that happens 
and it just stays flat for a few years, maybe there's a couple dips or something. Is that when these things become more reasonable? Because you can still make money at five and a half, six, seven percent, right? I mean, people did that in the 80s. Of course, that's exactly right. If you, I don't think anyone thought rates were going to stay at zero. We certainly didn't. You hedge. But again, if you'd asked me whether I thought rates would go from, again, zero to five and a half percent in the blink of an eye, I would, again, said you were, you're, you're nuts. In fact, you know, the journal every year at the end of the year, uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, interviews and surveys uh, economic pundits. I'm still not sure what a pundit is. I'm, I'm hoping to add that to my CV at some point. But, you know, um, you know, these professional economists, you know, the head of, you know, the chief economist at B of A and Wells and Goldman Sachs, and they asked them, you know, to survey the rates. And they were all so far off. It's it's comical. So, um, you know, I think it's that change. Now, looking out, you're right. If if things say, again, we have sort of normal increases or things stay steady and yet the economy remains on, on you know, a decent path, real wages continue to grow and but not excessively, energy prices stay in check and the whole nine yards. Yeah, we can have that soft landing. The needle would have been thread. And, you know, if lenders will work with borrowers that can do so and, and get through it. It, you know, history tells us all will be fine, but you got to you know, stay alive to 25 or whatever the, the right <laughs> thing is. And, right. you know, and it's going to be, um, you know, that will remain, remains to be seen. Uh, you know, it'll make things interesting. And that's, I guess, the spice of life. Yeah, exactly. Well, so let's talk about inflation. I know, you know, there's been supply chain is the reason for inflation. The pandemic's the reason for inflation. The interest rates, uh, insurance costs, like is inflation have they have they beat inflation no they ha- they haven't uh they, they you know this is uh this is like you know muhammad ali and, and joe frazier there's like three different fights or something or george foreman and we're, we're i'm not sure maybe in the first one i mean and and look you hit a lot of the, the the things that have happened of course you know COVID, unexpected russia's invasion of ukraine was incredibly inflationary because russia you know supplies some like three or four of the, of the you know the, the lean uh, producer and supplier of certain metals to supply chains. Um, of course, the largesse and the Fed's printing money like it was going out of style. I mean, Inflation Reduction Act is probably the most, you know, euphemistic thing. I mean, government spends, I don't care how it is, it's, it's going to be inflationary, but it, it sounded good. Um, so look, to get back to the 2% Fed target is still, uh, you know, a ways away. Um, you may have read this morning, the, uh, the ECB, the European Central Bank, raised rates to record highs uh, this morning. So, and, you know, we're impacted by that well. It's a small world after all. There's a lot of moving parts. I'll add one of the thing that's kind of also increasing rates, just a tidbit, some of, you know, all of us might be interested in, and, and the media really doesn't talk about it very much. Is that if you look at the net holdings of treasury bonds by the big biggest three holders, which again China, Japan, uh, and uh, and and you know several others, they've reduced their holdings in our treasury uh, bonds. Um, some of that maybe Saudi Arabia was one I was going to mention as well. They've reduced their treasury bond holdings, and I can talk about why that is. But that's sort of interesting. And that has had an impact on rates and our ability to sort of fund our budget deficits as well. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, but anyways, the short answer is the Fed's not done yet. <laughs> right. Well, wh- what does that mean when they when they reduce treasuries? I, I understand what it means. What's the effect? So if they're buying fewer treasuries, what does that mean for investors? What does that mean for interest rates? You know, because it all cascades into everything, right? 
Yeah, it's really weird to think about, you know, interest rates is is you know is, is a price. It's a price of again the supply and demand for, you know, for interest-bearing financial products. That's what it is. So when central banks, uh, you know, China, Japan, Saudi Arabia and others are selling treasury bonds for whatever reasons to bolster their currency to actually create some political uncertainty in the United States because um, you know they sort of may have certain wishes for a certain administration um, that again reduces the price of those bonds which the inverse that increases their yield so it's hard to disaggregate that. I mean, how much of the increase in interest rates has been caused by the sale of the, you know, the monetization of uh, U.S. Treasury securities by these large uh, central banks? But it's not insignificant, and um, it, it's concerning, as I said, because we've got budget deficits, which is I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on, that's an issue we should all be concerned of. And how do you fund those? You have to sell debt. Well, <laughs> if the big folks ain't buying or are demanding higher rates to 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 take a, a dip in that, you know, in that pool, that again is inflationary or increases rates. And what's the effect then on the dollar generally? Is this, you know, some of those countries are, oh, I guess China maybe is the one in the in the brick, right? That maybe you can talk about that. Is the is the dollar in danger? It, it seems like everyone's talking about the BRICs are going to go out and, and replace the dollar, but who's going to rely on China to use their currency, right? So it doesn't make sense. I wrote about that, uh, Jim, you know, in my, I think it was my Q1 uh, newsletter, I gave a, a, a spiel about that, that, you know, I had read all these pieces, the US dollar is on its deathbed, it's entering hospice or something like that. And, that, <laughs> that, that, that you know, again, that's great media fodder, it sounds great, but there, that's, that's a lot of bull. I mean, and it, look, 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 we, speaking of China, right, people say, oh, the RMB is going to replace the dollar, you know, yeah, okay, have you seen what's going on in China? Are you you, you nuts? Uh, you know, China has currency restrictions, they don't allow outflows of currency, you can't become the global currency without, you know, sort of, again, get, get a little wonkish about very low economic and, and, and transactional frictions, you know, costs. So, well, yeah, if you don't allow currency out of your home market, it's impossible. So that's a lot of BS, um, you know, but sure, you know, Japan, especially with the, the yen, they, I think in some cases have sold U.S. dollars, U.S. treasuries to sort of bolster their own currency. Um, but that's not happening. They're not replacing the dollar and, and, you, and the euro. I mean, you got you must be kidding. So, look, that, those are, you know, great headlines and taglines to, you know, uh, clickbait kind of stuff. But it ain't happening. Uh, so don't believe that rhetoric. And China also has huge demographic issues, right? So people talk like China is going to replace the U.S. as the global power and all that. But how does how does that happen when their their demographics just are not working for them? Jim, you're answering your own question. You know, it's great, but it's, which you know, you know, I lo- you know, we both love to hear ourselves talk. It's good. No, I know you're, you're no, it's really it's a you hit it, you hit it on the head. And but let's not okay. So a couple, let's unpack that. As far as China specifically, a couple data points. China's population declined last year for the first time in 80 years. Okay, so China's population declined, but. Again, that's not unique to China. It's the developed world. Look, uh, the entire developed world is not replicating the way it, it used to. If you look at basically the you know children per couple, it's basically a two point one right now, or heading and heading downwards. Look, we've all realized what a pain in the backside children are, how expensive they are. <laughs> you know, you gotta you gotta educate and feed these creatures. God, right. <laughs> uh, 
and, and they should get in the way of a lot of things. But in any event, um, you know, it's not just China. So, you know, Japan has gone through that demographic horror show. China's there. The United States is 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 basically within, as I wrote, and, and I think demographers sort of agree within, you know, three to five percent of peak population unless we get immigration fixed. And that's a political football. So it's a real issue, Jim, across the developed world, certainly in China. That, by the way, I'll just interject, is de- very deflationary. So you think about what happened in Japan and price decreases, population declines are is you know are deflationary. So that's a big macro trend. Of course, that's over years and decades, but a lot to unpack and keep an eye on there. Great question. And and so I want to move a little bit then into actual real estate. Um, you know, the big the big thing everyone's talking about now are distressed assets, distressed multifamily. If you're an operator and you're not going after distressed assets, then what are you doing? So a couple of questions with that. What does it mean to be distressed? Is that the only thing you can buy now? Is that the new value add is distressed real estate? And then are lenders going to work out loans? Or are they going to start owning all the multifamily apartments in, in the country? Yeah, I mean, OK, uh, Distress is uh, is being a UCLA football fan many seasons, but I mean distress. <laughs> there isn't a, a a definition of a distress at, that I am aware of either in academia or in the real world. I guess it's sort of like that old uh, you know definition. You know when you you see it. Um, I I think you know distress obviously has a lot to do with you know uh, operating cash flows from any asset versus the levels of of you know indebtedness that's tied to it. And right, just because of the increase in interest rates we talked about later, even if an asset is performing well, it's probably at some level distressed because if if you were to either sell or try to recapitalize the asset, the capital structure, you're likely to have to you know put cash in, take a loss right now. Now, would that mean you lose the asset? No. I mean, if you've got fixed rate debt, you're probably okay. You've taken some paper losses. There's no question. You know, that's just, I don't care what asset class you're in um, because the NOI hasn't been able to uh, keep up with it. Um, but will the banks own everything? No, um, I, I don't think so. Certainly, there are going to be some tough decisions that banks have to make. In fact, I teach an entire class on workouts and distress. It's been a pretty boring subject the last decade, but boy, now it's becoming timely again. And, you know, lenders have to look at a lot of different factors. I have a whole kind of framework for if I'm a lender, uh, how I think about whether I should um, work with a a borrower and, you know, uh, be patient and sort of uh, extend loans and with certain other, you know, quid pro quos, or do I, you know, hey, hand over the keys, it's it's over. that is going to be, you know, asset dependent, borrower dependent, sponsor dependent, guarantor dependent, and a lot of different factors going into that. And, and again, we can discuss each, you know, in detail if you'd like, or as much time as we have. Yeah, what, what I'm curious about is, you know, we're, we're LP investors typically, left field investors. We're LPs, limited partners on these deals, so we have no control, no say. We just, you know, we're we're on we're on the boat and we're we're going where it takes us. So. If we're analyzing the deals we're already in and what the what we should do about them, you know, is there anything that we should be looking at or, you know, if this this bank might be a better bank to work out the loan just so we know what's coming? Because it, it just seems like we can't do anything, but I feel like I should be informed on some of these assets I'm in that might be shaky. Yeah, no, I, again, I, 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 I'm with you, Jim, that trade-off of, of, again, of transparency and this and that. I think to me... 
watch your sponsors. That's where, again, it's so important to invest with experienced sponsors because, you know, look, um, and sponsors have skin in the game. Because at the end of the day, if you've got a sponsor who's experienced, you've got a sponsor who's put, you know, not an insubstantial amount of capital next to yours. And that's certainly been our philosophy at Clear Capital. You know, watch what we do. Now, um, there will be, there's still that uncertainty. There's no question. Um, And, uh, you know, I think one thing to keep an eye out is really making sure that the, 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 the sponsors with whom we've all invested have executed. It's one of the things that lenders look to. I mean, if you haven't executed on your business plan, your value of business plan, improved units, improve the common area, Im- increased NOI since the time you've invested, that's, you know, that's not a good sign, honestly. That's, uh, you know, that's something to ask or inquire. Why hasn't the NOI gone? Because again, the fundamentals are still there on the numerator piece. Occupancies are still fairly strong, certainly in multifamily. Now, if you're, so as you've invested in office and all that, well, you know, that's a little nice here. Uh, on the multifamily space, it's really about has the operator executed on their plan, at least in part to improve the asset, um, you know, uh, and increased NOI. Because if they have, if rates come down, and again, we get sort of a normal, normalized, you know, sort of situation, and you, you stay alive to 25 and 26, things should be fine. You've got to hold on. Um, but again, that's why you want to be with uh, sponsors with, uh, I mean, for better or worse, you know, the wrinkles and the gray hair. They've been through some cycles. And, and uh, right. you know, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that in a flattering way, frankly. It's just the reality because uh, you've been through these before, and um, that experience will be really, really important. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left-field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us slash LFI. Accredited investors, listen up. Are you looking to invest in a time-tested asset class with an experienced operator? Then GSPREI is here for you. GSPREI is a vertically integrated real estate investment company specializing in single-family affordable and workforce rental housing. Through their in-house construction and property management, GSPREI has been able to consistently generate high yields for their investors. Whether you're looking for predictable monthly income or long-term growth, GSPREI has fund offerings to fit your passive investing needs. To learn more about GSPREI and explore their fund offerings, visit their website at gsprei.com. That's gsprei.com. How do you how do we evaluate sponsors based on experience when, you know, some of the very experienced operators got it so wrong, right? They're doing capital calls that they didn't, they, they didn't, they're blaming things, some of them, some of them on pandemic interest rates, all these things where they didn't execute the business plan like you were talking about. And and so you, you might be getting capital calls, you might be losing some of your equity. How do we change our evaluation of an operator, of a sponsor, knowing that they're super experienced, but maybe they didn't, they didn't get through this 
as cleanly as they could have. And it's, you know, I understand some deals aren't going to work out, right? But when it's operational, the business plan didn't work. I have a problem. If it's interest rates, okay, I understand. We missed it. We didn't get it. Does that well, make sense right. what I'm asking? Yeah, I do. And that's why, you, you you know, again, we talk about controllable and uncontrollable things, right? What's within any sponsor, any investor's control? It's true as limited investors, and I'm a limited partner in Lord knows how many partnerships and LLCs. Uh, not just clear capitals. Many of my former students have had they have some distress too in some of the projects. You do have to distinguish between, let's say, look that what happened with interest rates. That again, I don't care. I, I talked to a gazillion people with even more gray hair than I have, and no one got it. No one predicted right. that. So you know um, that's unprecedented, and 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 that's why even we can, again we glossed over and talked about it. But what happened in the in the in the you know in the spring with the banking, the fastest banking crisis in oh. my career. It's not over yet, by the way. Um, you know that's with very experienced folks. You know, First Republic Bank. I mean, you're talking that's where we do our banking. You know, we're talking very seasoned folks. So you really do have to find out. I'd ask. Okay, in your original business plan, you said you were going to improve, um, you know, renovate uh, 30 units. How many have you renovated? <laughs> what has been the delta before the rents before and the rents after versus what you it? Okay, um, that's the control part. That's the part with the sponsor, have they done it? Okay, you said you were going to add a dog park. You said you were going to, you know, uh, add cabanas to the pool area. I mean, whatever the darn business plan was, did check those boxes. You can find out if you're able and some of you guys all can visit the, the properties. If they're within your geographic areas where you live, go check it out and see what they did. Um, but distinguish between that and things like interest rates, like insurance costs, Jim, you mentioned that earlier. I mean, no one predicted insurance premiums to go up 20.4% year over year in Q1. 20% if they didn't cancel your backside, okay? Right. In Florida and California, you know. So those were not foreseen uh, wildfires and hurricanes, and maybe we should have, but I mean, you know, acts of God. So I think distinguishing those two things is critically important. Um, and I would add one other thing. Look, I can tell you Clear Capital. We made our first capital call. Ever. Never done it. Okay. But I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it was the, this asset was worth, you know, I, I, I the, and we increase the NOI. We have executed, but it's, you know, we all like receiving distributions. No one likes writing checks. So it's, um, it's not taken lightly. Um, but it's, you know, it's where we are in this particular cycle. Right. And I think capital calls, they, like you said, they happen as long as you're responsible and transparent and informing. You know, the, the, I've been on both sides of this. I've had a few capital calls and some I've been okay with because they've been completely transparent, you know, all, all along the way. Hey, this is why we're doing it. And others were like, hey, you know, you're in a couple of deals. All, everything's fine except for this one. And then three months later, well, there's a few more. And then they just keep dribbling out the bad news. And that is not the way to receive bad news. Yeah, you know, in defense of those sponsors, and I can't speak for for them, it's 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 hard to, as you said, Jerome Powell has, is threading a needle, and so are sponsors to some degree. I mean, this is all sort of new and unprecedented. It's a horrible freaking word. I hate that word, unprecedented. But <laughs> you know, um, and you know, these acts of God, we call them in academia, sort of four sigma events. You think for those who are, who are statistically minded, um, you know, so how do you sort of pass on whatever news when it's changing so rapidly and things are, are, are unclear. Um, but like I said, it, it, the one thing, again, if the sponsor is skin in the game, like, for example, 
on our capital call. We had one. I wrote, I personally wrote a check, a good sized check, along with everybody else to put money in. And that's the other thing. Are the sponsors, you know, putting their own money where their mouths are? I mean, you know, look, talk is cheap. So look, you want to, you know, I can tell you a clear, we're, we're, we're putting our, I have put my money where my mouth is and, uh, and, and that whatever, pain investors may be suffering, Lord knows um, it's it's felt by yours truly. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. But if your sponsors are all talk and no cattle or what's it all horse and no cattle, I'm in California, <laughs> so we don't have those things. Um, if, you're, if you're all surf and no surfboard. Um, there you go. I'm not even sure that makes any sense. Uh, <laughs> you know, then uh, and, and sponsors are, you're not, you know, are, aren't doing, then I think you need to take a real harder look and say, well, gee, do I, you know, make that capital call or not? And just, you know, take the dilution that comes and, and see what happens. It's a, I, I can understand that dilemma. Yeah, it, it's a tough decision to make um, whether to participate or not and just to evaluate. But you, you mentioned in there when you're talking about banks and you kind of said, uh, you know, it's not over yet. Can you expand on that a little bit? You know, you used to be able to say it's not over till you know certain individual sings. I don't think you can say that these days. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, you know so um, it, it isn't over because you know. Look, uh, I gave, and if and if your viewers are interested, I'd, I'd love to be connected with y'all on LinkedIn. I do publish a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. I did a whole hour video on the banking crisis, which I'm sure is still up, and I share as a and, you know, as a teacher, as a professor, I try to be very transparent, and and I'm very much on engagement education. Uh, I did a whole hour, so I can't possibly summarize that. But look, it, it comes down to some simple economics, the two sides of any bank's balance sheet, right? You've got your deposits with folks like us, and I'm sure, you know, um, if you're on demand deposits, you're still getting somewhere between jack and squat. But if you look at the cost <laughs> of funds on CDs and, 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 and other money market accounts, banks are paying, you know, north of 4%. You just have to ask them and make sure you move your money, and you know, from zero. So that is costing them a lot. On the asset side, two things are working against the banks. Uh, one is all of the loans that they've got, unless they're truly in real time floating, um, they've had losses themselves on those six straight loans. They've lost money and lost. That's what did First Republic in. Uh, you know, too much fixed rate, long-term fixed rate loans that have just declined terribly in value. Same with long dated treasuries. Any kind of loan has taken a, taken a hit. On the other, on the floating rate loans, they usually have a lag. There may be some again. That's where sponsors are getting hurt, if, you know, really. And so they that's where any distress they've got is coming from those floating rate loans as well as the fixed rate loans to some degree. And again, they're not making loans. There's uh, the lending activity is way way down. So operationally, they're they're having struggles. So it's a combination of things. And I will I can, you know, what, what was the the men's warehouse commercial? I guarantee it. There are more bank failures coming, I guarantee it. Um, and I'm not saying that be tongue-in-cheek or humorous. It's not a good thing. Um, and that's the Fed has got to be mindful of that. They, 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 their interest rate sledgehammer works on all sorts of ways, and banks are not immune. So they've got to be very mindful. And again, that's another needle. They can't have crisis. They've so far, again, controlled it. Three, five, what was it, Silicon Valley Signature and, uh, you know, another re regional bank I'm, I'm, I'm uh, forgetting right now. But again, they it hasn't been widespread. Good for them. They they, they backstopped deposits. Yeah. So you, you mentioned, you know, interest rates you can get from a bank, 4%, maybe a seed, six-month CD, you can get 5 5.5%. Five 
why does it make sense to invest in, in multifamily when you know people are paying me five or six percent cash flow on a risk asset when I can I can go to the bank or the, get a CD for five and a half percent? Uh, we hear that every day, and it's 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 a it's a reasonable question, right? I mean, everything's about opportunity cost. Um, the, the, there really is only you know probably a few reasons. I would say one is reinvestment risk. I mean, so you you said six months, right? So yes, for in fact, uh, you know, on a, a three month Treasury bill, uh, I haven't looked in where they are. Yeah, five percent, but obviously. Um, you have reinvestment risk. So to the extent that rates decline or which they will, I have no doubt that they will. It's just a question of when, um, you know, you have to reinvest those money that the party won't last forever. But, yeah, I, I can certainly understand the temptation there. And, and certainly it's not a for some of your capital makes all the sense. And for, we all need to have cash reserves that should be in money markets. You don't want to leave those in in CD uh, in a, in a, uh, your regular savings account earning that, you know, point. Where, where the, what you're earning is to the right of the decimal point. Um, so that's an easy one. Uh, but the second thing is really growth, right? I mean, the whole point of investing in any sort of uh, more risk-based investment, whatever it is, is the growth in cash flow. So, you know, you may be earning, let's say, whatever the, the yield is nowadays. Let's say you're at a four um, in today's market, um, which you're right, is below the, the short-term rates. But the whole point is that's going to grow. I think as a, as a, that will grow over time, which the opposite is true with the, with the cash on hand. And look, history tells you it's in the most uncertain times where investors do the best. But it's really, really hard to invest in uncertainty. I mean, again, it's when, when is it easiest to raise money for our business, for any sponsor? At the market peak. It is. We can we can sugarcoat it. It's true in the equity markets. It's true in real estate. It's true in everything. Um, it's hardest when it shouldn't be. So, in fact, when it's difficult, is usually the best time to invest. And history tells us that. So, it's about balance. I agree. You got to have liquidity for all the uncertainty. You want to take advantage of the higher rates. And so, I think you're onto it. But you got to keep investing. Um, just be more selective and mindful uh, of what you're investing in. So. Yeah, so so to be mindful of the investments, like let's let, we're talking multifamily. You're you're a multifamily operator. So if I'm an LP, considering all the uncertainty we've talked about, what what are what, what's the most important metric or, or a couple of metrics to consider when I'm deciding whether or not to invest in a particular multifamily deal or the asset class generally? Yeah, I don't think that you can. I, I get asked that question all the time. You know, even in class, you know, what's the one thing? I don't know if you remember the movie City Slickers, right? Kurt, again, I am yeah. dating myself again. Curly, right? Life, you yeah. got to remember the one thing, right? <laughs> There's never any one thing. I, I sort of am a macro. You've read my stuff. I tend to go yeah. macro to micro because the micro is almost impossible to uh, you have to predict, right? What is the Fed going to do? What you know, are people going to start having more children because of tax incentives or whatever? I mean, you know, it's just hard to predict. The macro, to me, it's the difference between renting and buying. And right now, we are at record highs in terms of the delta between the cost to own uh, a single-family residential home and to rent a unit. And it's not shocking, right? Because of the mortgage rates. So what's, you know, impacts the goose, impacts the gander, you know, while multifamilies affected. I mean, uh, 30 year fixed rate mortgages have gone from less than 3% to, you know, a couple of years ago to, you know, we're now at close to seven and a half percent. I mean, the impact is unreal. Meanwhile, of course, 
single family home prices haven't really gone down. There's reasons for that where rents are basically flat right now, if not even down year over year, just marginally. So the cost to buy and cost to rent to me, I look at. So that factor is huge because I know the the need for rental units is very high. So I look at that. I look at, of course, uh, you know, units coming out of the ground. We've had, you know, lots of supply coming out of the ground in certain markets like Atlanta and Austin, for example, Nashville. And therefore, rents are falling more sharply in those markets. Um, other markets, you know, there's still rental growth. The Midwest has done very well. We're not in there, um, but Midwest has actually seen some rental growth. So, um, you know, I look at, at those factors broadly, and then I look at sort of, okay, where is the asset? What does the local economy look like? What are the drivers of industry, job growth, um, wages, and so forth? Um, you know, I'll give you an example, Jim, that just, again, I don't like, to, just, just, just to, hi- you know, to highlight the issue. I just read that Microsoft is not renewing its lease for its corporate headquarters in Bellevue, Washington. All right. Like there's, it's it's three quarters of a million square feet. Now I'm not sure if that's, I haven't read all the details. I assume it's because of hybrid working and, and whatnot. So the impact on, you know, Seattle's already seen, you know, real drop in rents. And I wouldn't want to be owning units in Bellevue, Washington, anywhere near Microsoft's headquarters. I guarantee you, we're going to try to sell, not realizing that's in 25. So you have to really understand the drivers of local demand for units, you know, not get yourself tied up with you know, one industry and one driver. And and then um, look, um, you know, it's it goes the same things we've talked about, but, you know, sponsors and everything else. But that's what, what I look at, uh, broadly speaking. Um, and then, you know, the rental opportunity and value add, of course, what is the current rent and what can it be based on the, the comps and how much is it going to take to get there? Yeah, and, and then clear capital is in not the standard markets. And I, and I don't mean that in a bad way, right? It's, you know, it seems like when, when I see deals coming out from you guys, they're, they're in, in states that sometimes we don't normally see syndicators operating in. So can you talk a little bit um, about how you choose a market and, and what you're looking at that might be different from others that are, you know, in the Phoenix, Dallas, and, and those kind of places? Well, we've looked, you know, we have, we've had assets in all in, in all those markets. Look, we're, we're more just geographically focused. I'm, I'm, you know, we're, I'm sitting here in Westwood, California, West Los Angeles. So, you know, our roots are here locally, but, you know, and we have a lot of assets in California. I still like California. We're still the fourth largest economy in the world, for God's sakes, despite all the rhetoric. <laughs> Again, that's media. You know, we're not all downtown San Francisco or Union Square area there. Um, right. But, yeah, California's got some challenges. So we, you know, we've invested in, you know, Oregon, Colorado, Arizona. We have had assets in Texas and Utah, and we still do. Um you know, part of the other thing is, is we look at, uh, you know, when we look at a market is where it's, it's, I, mean, I know I must have used the same before with you, Jim, is it's the Wayne Gretzky quote, you know, which where the puck is going. But look, demographically, population has left the coasts and will continue to leave the coasts. Um, I, I've called it, you know, again, my wonkish way, manifest destiny in reverse. I'm sure I've used that with you too. So, you know, people are leaving California for, for less expensive pastures, uh, maybe less bureaucracy and red tape. We're good at that here in California. <laughs> so, you know, we have invested in, in those markets. Um, we look at, you know, where's industry, where are job growth happening? And that's one thing that's happening in the United States, I think is, is, you know, onshoring of industrial and supply chains. Uh, that's one benefit of COVID to the country is, um, you know, uh, I think we're going to see more manufacturing here in, in the States. Um, 
And uh, that's going to be great for for unions and jobs, of course, on the day where the UAW is threatening to start striking here. Um, you know, so we look at where jobs are, what's driving uh, jobs, what are the, you know, what does uh, supply of new inventory look like? That's been plaguing, of course, markets like Austin, Nashville, Phoenix, where a lot of new units have come on board. But there's a lot of growth in those markets, too. So, you know, you have to look at all these data points and try to buy selectively and, um, and uh, you know, go from there. Yeah, I, I always like it when when I see someone that's doing business in, in a state that I, I don't have a whole lot in because that gives me a little bit more diversification. Um, so that that's part of the part of the reason for that question. But we're we're kind of getting up to the time here. And uh, the last question I always ask, I'm not going to ask because I know you're not a podcast listener, although you are a great podcast guest. So give us a book that you've read recently or and or a good uh, source for uh, economic news. Gosh, you know, the main thing is, I have to be honest. Okay, it's, this, is, this is, let my therapy session begin. Now, I am not <laughs> a big book reader, I think, because I, I have to, I, I read so much stuff. And again, and I, I, I really um, thank you for the, the newsletter plug. That's really the, my biggest plug. As, as an academic who loves to sort of engage and think about things deeply, I really do. But in a way that I hope is 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 reachable to folks. Um, you know, and again, that's all it's available on LinkedIn. So you don't have to, you know, <clears throat> subscribe to anything. Just connect with me on LinkedIn. And I'd like that. Anyhow, um, I read so much stuff. I, I, it's nonstop. The things that I sort of read, the blogs that I read, there's, you know, even on, on Twitter or dare I say X, X. <laughs> uh, you know, I follow some very smart folks, um, that I think are, are worth uh, following. Um, but, um, you know, if I had to choose one, I probably have mentioned it. If I had to read one publication and just one, and I do, it's The Economist. I, I think The Economist, it's, it's, it is, I'm telling all of you, it's the best thing. And you don't, again, all of our times are limited. We don't have enough time. You can, the, the articles are short. You can kind of skim the headlines and get a real sense. It covers the globe. It covers economics, business, banking, finance, demographics, social issues. It covers like everything and everything affects real estate. So I, I encourage it and you'll get a little, you'll see a little tidbit that might, you know, oh, that's, that's, that's an interesting article and it's, and they're short. They're no more than usually yeah. a page. So you get, you get it in, in small bites, which is really great for all of us. Um, and I'd have to say, you know, I, I, I will tell you, my, I, I know this is so self-serving. It's ridiculously self-serving, but I think my newsletter, if you skim it has, it covers a ton of stuff that people can kind of look at. Um, and it's because of my wiring. And, and uh, I don't think Warren Buffett or, or Howard Marks from Oak Tree are shaking in their shoes from the newsletter world, but that's where I do my podcasting. I sort of do it through that means and uh, maybe in the written word as a professor type. But um, I don't know, those are some thoughts. <laughs> no, that's great. And I think um, The Economist has a great podcast. And, and I like that because I can listen to it at two or two and a half speed. And that's a lot faster than I can read. So I would recommend you turning your newsletter also into a podcast and just have somebody read it. It'd be fantastic that I could do it two and a half times and I'd get it all in. But the newsletter is fantastic. I don't mean to overplug, but it is it is the it is a great source of economic news and it's also presented in a way that you said it's easily easy to digest and funny, entertaining while yeah. you're getting educated. And if you're gonna get entertained and educated at the same time, I'm all for it. So I love that. One of my one of my students told me years ago said, you know, Professor Sussman, you're you're an edutainment. I, you know, I, 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 I said, I said, well, you know, to me, education is truly a gift. It's the gift that all of us have. And we don't, we, we don't, 
value it enough. In fact, I always I tell students, you know, they say MasterCard is priceless. Bullshit. Education is priceless, really. Um, and of course, it is expensive in the real world, but it doesn't have to be necessarily if you're if you're someone who seeks it. Uh, you know, so uh, I appreciate it. Um, and I, yeah, I'm irreverent. I, you know, I, you know, in another life, uh, maybe John Stewart or, or stand-up comedy would have called my name, but um, unfortunately, Lauren Michaels of SNL hasn't called me yet, and uh, so my my comedy is, is is left to my classes and my newsletter to some degree. But um, you know, I think it makes the uh, it's the spoonful of sugar which helps the medicine go down when you're talking about boring things like yield curves and absolutely and you know uh you know demographic data or whatever the heck you're doing no it, it, it's great and look we we appreciate you being on the show um i think you've been on summer winter or summer spring and now fall so we'll have to get you next winter and uh, see if all your uh, predictions which i guess you made a few of them the last time you made a prediction on the podcast though you picked um then pac 10 ucla to win the national championship um i might have goaded you into that they lost in the sweet 16 to the runner-up so that was that wasn't a bad prediction that was that was on on par it wasn't the sweets didn't they make the elite eight or was it the sweet I mean, maybe it was the sweet 16 i can't even remember we you know we uh, we was it Gonzaga we lost I can't I can't remember look I I I UCLA basketball I'm I'm always the uh, I'm always the uh, optimist in chief you know hope hope springs eternal if uh, you know at, at Jim one of my favorite quotes it is it, I use it all the time is is from the Shawshank Redemption and Andy Dufresne hope is a good thing maybe the best of things and uh, you know. Or a good thing and good things never die or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful UCLA were ranked, I think, uh, 22nd in football right now. And uh, I think we're 24th in basketball preseason. So, you know, hey, uh, although I think our crosstown rivals USC on the gridiron has us beat this year, sons of bees. But uh, Big Ten, you know, we're coming for you, Ohio State, Michigan. Here we go. It's going to be right. ugly. Jim, you're not, where the heck are you, Jim? Remind me. Ohio, Columbus, you know, Ohio I, State. I was going to say Ohio. Oh God! I, I okay, okay, uh, friends of of you know Leftfield and and Jim, give the points when Ohio State takes UCLA. Give the points. <laughs> you'll you'll cover. I'm afraid. Uh, in but, football, maybe not in basketball. That's a different story. We'll see. You 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 had a few good years back then, but uh, in the Con that's true. Anyways, Greg Greg Odom and Conley days, if I remember correctly. Yeah, they, they did all right. They did all right. One and done, though. That doesn't, that doesn't, it's not sustainable, right? But yeah, I enjoyed yeah. that season. So, well, Eric, thank you again for being on the podcast. I really enjoy these shows and, and, and I learned just a ton. So, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way to connect? You know, I would say, look, LinkedIn is, is great. I mean, I, I, and again, you can you know, obviously find us through Clear Capital, too. I mean, and, and, it, you know, and register there. But, you know, LinkedIn is great. And, and I publish everything there as transparently as I can. And I, I, I love uh, I, you do a great job. You really do have some great speakers on. And um, I learned, too. So that's, um, uh, again, it's part of the education in life. Even if it's not formal or taking exams, it's a, it's a great gift. Exactly. Well, thank you again for being on. We really appreciate it. Anytime. I'll see you. I'll see you next winter. Of course, yes, in Los absolutely. Angeles, winter is the same dang thing as fall and spring. So whatever. <laughs> well, don't rub it in. But thank you. We'll see you soon. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Bye. All. Bye. This is Chad Ackerman, the host of the LFI Spotlight podcast. As part of our growth here at Left Field Investors, the LFI Spotlight is moving to its own podcast feed. So if you'd like to continue to hear stories, tips, and receive advice, be sure to subscribe to the LFI Spotlight podcast today. We'll see you in the spotlight.
I absolutely love talking to Eric. I, I could ask him questions all day. Um, he just has such a deep knowledge of, of the economy and what's going on, and he also delivers it in an entertaining way. I know I kept talking about his newsletter, but it is fantastic because it gives you all the information and it's entertaining to read. And I, I do get a couple other newsletters from people and they're great, they're informative, they're deep, but it's just dry because it's economics, right? But Eric makes it interesting and that's why I like having him on the podcast because he really he really um, cares and, and that shows, but he also has great information and, and it comes in an inter- entertaining way. You know, a couple of things that he talked about, you know, one was consensus. When everybody is thinking, hey, this is gonna happen, that almost uh, means the outcome is, is, is likely gonna be different than the experts are predicting. So. That I don't know what to do with that other than if everyone's saying, hey, this is what's going to happen, what's going to happen, then maybe I think, well, okay, that thing's not going to happen. Maybe it's going to be something else. And, you know, we always talk about the sponsors having skin in the game, and that's important. But really, in this time, you really got to make sure that they have significant skin in the game. We always say skin in the game, but we want it to be significant. You know, Eric says he's usually one of the largest investors in his deals. Well, that makes a huge difference. You know, Eric talked about a capital call and how hard that was for him to do. But, you know, he's writing a big check along with that capital call, too. And so that means interests are aligned and it makes sense. And we're all getting, you know, having to figure out, are we going to participate in this capital call? Are we not going to participate? And, you know, you got to re-underwrite every deal. But one of the things I would start, I have started asking is, what what's your participation in this you know mr and mrs sponsor how much are you putting in and and you know you, you got to know that they are confident in their own deal and it's got to be a significant amount to know that that that's where they're going that they don't think this deal is going to fail they're just kind of pushing the can down the road no they are they are committed they're committed to their business plan and when you're looking at that you got to make sure that the business plan is actually going forward. You know, we're seeing some of these operators who just gave up. They said, oh, interest rates went up, so I'm not going to do my business plan. I'm not going to rehab these units. I'm not going to put in the dog park. Well, there's no excuse for that. You got to do the business plan. And if you're doing the business plan and interest rates or insurance or some other event that you didn't think was going to happen, happened, and that's why you're doing the capital call and you're putting a bunch of money in it yourself and you have a business plan that you've been executing, okay, then then, then it makes sense. Maybe we'll... Uh, We'll, we'll participate in that capital call. But those, those are the things you got to look at. And, you know, this episode, you know, we haven't titled it yet, but I think uncertainty is going to be in the title because that's what we're talking about. Everything is so uncertain now. And that there's risk in that and there's opportunity. And what we need to do is go find the opportunity. So again, we'll have Eric on again. I just love talking to him. He's, he's a great guest. So that's all we have for this time. We'll catch you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show was copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. 
Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.